Welcome to Now Playing, the movie review podcast. The caller is in the house. The calls are coming from the house. Get up! We are putting a little extra stuffing in your stocking. Arnie, Brock, and Stuart are reviewing Black Christmas. I see Billy still gets a Christmas present. But before you unwrap your present, know that this podcast contains harsh language and spoilers for the films. So if you listen before you watch the films, then there will be no surprises for you Christmas morning. Merry Christmas, motherfucker! Today we're talking about Black Christmas, starring Olivia Hussey. Here, oh come on! I can't help it. Uh, you know, we're doing a movie. There's like obscene phone calls about certain body parts. First words out of your mouth is "hussy." It's gonna be a long show. Wait, yeah, I, I... I saw Black Christmas with Richard Roundtree. Am I? Did I review the wrong movie? <laughs> Um, I actually was complaining about the name Kier Dulier, but uh, sure, Olivia Hussey, I have the same thing. Unfortunate name for the girl. Um, Margot Kidder, John Saxon, our friend John Saxon, and directed by Bob Clark. This is Barack, co-host of Now Playing. This is Super Tongue in L.A. I mean, Stewart in L.A. <laughs> Don't tell him what we did, Arnie. <laughs> well, this is uh, this is a special edition of Now Playing. This is a special gift to you, our podcast listeners, because you, our friends, you have nominated us for every podcast award that we have asked you to do so, and we are eternally grateful. And as a thank you to you, we are giving you this bonus episode of Black Christmas, and in the spirit of the holiday... We are giving you this, and in exchange, we're asking you to please give us the actual award. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be honest here. The gift was going to be to us. We were going to take kind of December off and just do Tron every other week and then kick back up in January. But no, here we are again on a week we expected to be off because, well, we want your vote. I'm just hoping to win a statue with of a little glass unicorn or something. It'd be cool. <laughs> If we win, I'll give you one, Stuart. <laughs> but no, right now, the voting is up at podcastawards.com. Started on December 1st, going through December 15th. And you nominated us. You went once. You nominated us. You're like, oh, I did them a solid. But voting, it's every day. So every day, if you go back, it helps us more. So podcastawards.com, every day through the 15th. We really appreciate it because we're bringing you not only... Black Christmas, the 1974 original, but we sat through the remake, too. <laughs> sat and shat. All right. <laughs> well, let me just say, when I said, let's do a bonus podcast to shill for some votes, Stuart's like, Black Christmas. And I'm thinking, that movie came out a couple years ago, but it's Christmas, and I can see it. Our listeners like it when we do some horror. All right, we'll do Black Christmas. And then he's like, and I'll watch the remake. I'm like, a remake? Does he mean a direct-to-video sequel? He's like, it's streaming on Netflix. Okay, great. Then I don't have to rent it. It's from 1974. Wait, what did I agree to? I had no clue what I was watching until the day I was watching it, and you tell me it's from the 70s. And truthfully, I didn't know what I was watching either. Truth be told, this all came from the forum. Somebody suggested there, and I, I apologize, I don't remember who, that we should do Black Christmas. So, you know, you tell me a one-off around the holidays, a horror movie, it sounds like an easy fit. Yeah, I was hoping for Ernest Saves Christmas, but I'll take Black Christmas, that's fine. It was Jay on the forums. Ah, Jay. Thank you, Jay. I had never heard of either of these movies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is uh, this is uh, never happened before. All three of us have never seen any of the movies in the series. Well, either of the movies in the series. And right. truth be told, I knew nothing about them. Nothing at all. I have seen movies that were derivative of the original Black Christmas I now know, but I didn't know Margot Kidder was in it. When I saw Margot Kidder in the credits, I figured she was the star. Hmm. I didn't expect to see John Saxon until he popped on screen, and I'm like, did I drift off? Am I watching Nightmare on Elm Street? Because he's playing a lieutenant again. Yeah. <laughs> I saw his name in the credits, and I cheered. It's like, oh, good, I know this guy. And this is the first time I've ever seen Margot Kidder in anything that's when her name is not Lois Lane. <laughs> you never saw Amityville. Uh, not yet. This is the only time I've seen Olivia Hussey in something where her name's not Juliet. 
Yes, indeed. I don't. It's probably not true anymore. But when you're in grade school and they're trying to teach you Shakespeare, all they would do was play the 1968 version of Romeo and Juliet with Olivia Hussey year after year after year. I saw this thing like five times. That's the only thing I knew her <laughs> from. That and Norman Bates's mom in Cycle Four. But we'll get to that some other. You day. know, and I'm not sure if you guys remember this though, but Olivia Hussey in that Zeffirelli Romeo and Juliet boob shot. I'm sorry, what do we call it on now playing? I'm yeah, sorry, yeah, titty tiss, shot. Tiss. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Titty shot. And uh, we're all in class. We're like, did we just see that? Was that just that? <laughs> I was going to ask, actually, when Stuart said that he saw it in class every single year, because I also was, this was thrust upon me multiple years, although I do enjoy the original Romeo and Juliet from the 60s. But the teacher would always rush up to the VHS machine, stand directly in front of the TV, fast forward, and then push play post titty shot. <laughs> which of course made me go and buy the vhs but not all teachers are created the same i do remember some slow on the uptake and <laughs> i definitely got some titty around uh grade four <laughs> good for you Stuart. what about the movie <laughs> anyway speaking of titty shots i was surprised there wasn't one in the original black christmas considering it takes place at a sorority house and i was and it's thinking- made by the guy who made porkies <laughs> yeah, I just figured we're going to see something, and we didn't, and I was really surprised. Well, it is a surprise for lots of reasons, and namely because this is it, I guess. I had no real idea, but this is the first horror-slash-movie set at a holiday, right? Before Friday the 13th, before My Bloody Valentine, and before Halloween, there was Black Christmas. Who knew? Yeah, I really was sitting here like all these things that when we did the Halloween and Friday the 13th retrospective series that we pointed back to Halloween, Mm -hmm. it like started here. I'm like, well, Black Christmas, pre-Halloween, Christmas in the title, so they're taking the holiday and also starting off with the POV shot. But why don't we start off with Stewart's POV on a plot summary? Oh, okay. Nice segue. Yeah. All right. (laughs) It's the night before the Phi Kappa Sigma Christmas pageant in the snowy college town of Bedford, and an unseen mouth breather climbs inside the sorority house attic to spy on the coeds. A few minutes later, the girls get a prank phone call from a creep they've dubbed Super Tongue, who usually just moans, but has expanded his act into these garbled vulgarities that kind of sound like outtakes from The Exorcist. And drunken sassy Barb, played by pre-Superman Margot Kidder, puts Super Tongue in his place, and he ends the call with a very calm reminder that he is going to kill them. All of the Phi Kappa Sigma girls gather around for presents with sorority mother Mrs. Mack, except for Claire Harrison, who has ushered her towny boyfriend Chris out the door so that she can go upstairs and finish packing. The intruder, now hiding in her closet, strangles Claire with plastic sheeting and takes her body back up with him into the attic, singing Little Baby Bunting as he situates her corpse in a rocking chair by the attic window. Claire's father, Mr. Harrison, becomes distressed when his daughter doesn't meet him at the arranged time and place, and he's not put at ease when he meets the other sorority girls who can't offer any details about her whereabouts and goes to see the police and is confronted with an inept Irish cop who doesn't even know the definition of the word fellatio. The mystery deepens when a townie mother stops by the station to report that her daughter Janice is missing as well. Meanwhile, Jess, the token Brit of Phi Kappa Sigma, breaks the news to her intense and brooding pianist boyfriend, Peter Smiley, that she's pregnant. He's excited, but Jess, living in a post-Roe v. Wade America, plans to abort the baby without his permission and does not want to put aside her career aspirations to marry him or raise his family. Angered, Peter blows his music recital and then proceeds to smash up his piano. Meanwhile, Jess joins a search party combing the park for the missing girls, which eventually turns up the dead body of Townie Jessica. The police put a phone tap on the Phi Kappa Sigma house, hoping to learn the whereabouts of Super Tongue, who's become their number one suspect. Jess gets the impression that Peter is Super Tongue when the mystery caller asks, where did you put the baby? And quotes snatches of conversations from her earlier argument with the pianist. But Jess conceals her suspicions from police lieutenant Ken Fuller, who's played by Elm Street alum and token white karate dude John Saxon. The intruder in the attic has dispatched Mrs. Mack, nasty drunk Barb, nerd girl Phil, and a cop sitting in a car outside by the time that Fuller and his men determine that the prank phone calls are coming from a second line inside the sorority house and that the intruder and the prank phone caller are the very same person. 
the serial killer, who now refers to himself in a childlike voice as Billy, calls sole survivor Jess by the name Agnes as he chases her around the house. Jess locks herself in the basement without getting a good look at her attacker, but her worst fears are confirmed when Peter breaks into the basement and attempts to console her. Fuller and the police arrive to find Jess collapsed, Peter dead by her hand, and Barb and Phil murdered in their beds upstairs. Mr. Harrison faints, and all of the authorities decide to go with him to the hospital, leading Jess sedated and alone in her bed. And in a final cryptic twist, we learn that Peter wasn't Billy after all, and that the unidentified killer is still holed up in the attic with the bodies of Mrs. Mack and Claire. Dead Claire stares out the window in the final shot as the phone begins to ring, and an unsuspecting police guard stares out into the distance. And that's it, guys. That's Black Christmas. So let's start where Arnie started earlier. The opening of this movie with the POV fisheye lens shot. And, of course, all of us thought Halloween at this point. And I was reminded, as Arnie said, that this is 1974. This is the same year the Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out, right? And so when we had that conversation, we talked about how many things in that movie have been co-opted by other movies past it. I had no idea that this movie used this POV shot first. So my question really is, is this the first movie to actually do it? Because Psycho, of course, had the shot of you know going into the shower, but that's not the same thing. I, I think it is kind of the same thing. It's just a longer version of it. I, I think they're all aping Psycho. Okay. I'm not going to disagree with that, although it does seem to be protracted. I mean, it does seem to be that Psycho, yes, we, there was lots of shots of Norman Bates looking through peepholes, and, and there were sort of images of him approaching the shower curtain, but there really weren't long tracking shots partly because the technology didn't exist. There was no such thing as Steadicam to mm-hmm. do it, but it's really the invention of Steadicam that I think allowed people to have the tools to go and, and have this killer POV. But yeah, this is before Halloween. This is even before Jaws. So they really feel like they're doing something kind of special here. Especially, it's so Halloween because it starts outside and it's got a very 70s feel as the original Halloween did. That same kind of brownish haze over the film and that same kind of grain and so you're at this pov shot outside of a brick house in kind of a suburban area i mean it's a sorority house but it's still it looks like it could be any house and then it goes from outside the house to inside the house i'm like yeah are they gonna put on a mask next and they show body parts they show limbs they even give away that it's probably a guy and definitely a white guy. So it it was bizarre to me that they wanted to tell so much right away, but I was impressed by the device. I was impressed with the fact that I felt like we were watching something that paved the road for a million slasher movies beyond it, including John Carpenter's Halloween. I mean, I got to say that movie might've taken a blow by watching this movie. My esteem for it fell a little. Because you thought what was so novel and clever in that movie with technique borrowed from this movie. Yes. Okay. But not in the execution, no pun intended, of the original Halloween. Because you can borrow something from another movie, but how you use it is what really matters. Would you agree with that? Sure. Okay. Which I would read between the lines and say that you feel like Halloween does it better than this movie. I do. I like the fisheye lens part of it. I thought that was kind of cool because it tells you right away this guy's off. Okay. Obviously, he's sticking in a sorority house, so we know something's off, but it gives you a clear picture that something's not right with this guy. Whereas Halloween, you don't know who's looking at Jamie Lee Curtis and her friends walking down the street, right? So I, I did like the device in Halloween very, very much. I like the opening sh- scene of Halloween so much, as we talked about on that podcast. So to have it here, and they used it sparingly here, I think Halloween took the idea and ran with it to give the suspense, give the, the aura of what made Halloween so special. And I think they did an improvement on it. I took the idea and, and, and went with it. With this opening scene, I can't say that this is any worse than Halloween. I did like that Halloween took it through to the apex and we saw the killing. And then the end of the scene was seeing little Mike Myers and realizing what you're seeing the whole time was a little boy. So there was a payoff to that mystery. Here, it was very cool in getting me into the feeling and getting me kind of on edge and starting it off with the right emotion, but it then just stops and it doesn't have that kind of payoff. Well, one of the big differences that I would note is that once we've established it's little boy Michael Myers and Halloween, you know every time they use the device later in the movie and later in the whole series who we are seeing. 
That's the killer chasing them. And this movie, when we're seeing that, we don't know who that is. And in theory, we don't exactly know the identity of this person. We're given some clues. There's some leading suspects, but it's more of a murder mystery. And I think this is the film. I I guess that's what I would call this. This is the missing link in between an Agatha Christie murder mystery, which had been playing for decades, and the slasher movie. This is the film that sort of paved the road between the two genres. Well, there are a number of films that are horror films and whodunit. I mean, we talked when we did the original Friday the 13th that it kind of played itself as a whodunit, and, but it cheated at the end by having the person whodunit not be anyone we'd met. Yeah. But here I kind of feel the same way because, as you mentioned in the plot summary, I'm watching this whole thing and I'm trying to figure out who it is and I'm into it trying to say is this person is it this person and i know they're trying to lead me to think it's the p and his boyfriend but i figure it's not him because we saw the pov shot and the first kill before he even knew about the baby and then the movie robs us it never tells us who it is and that i thought was kind of bullshit and i never bought that for a second for me it always was clear that the guy in the attic was a different guy than than the pianist. My leading suspect was actually Mr. Harrison, the father of Claire, the first girl that gets killed, just because he's so prudish. He's so against the girl's sexual liberation and, you know, uh, just the way they behave. It just seems to be like he would be the one you wouldn't suspect. Going from my Scooby-Doo logic of things, if the (laughs) pianist is the obvious choice, and every time they show the killer's POV, they have someone banging on piano keys, and he's so obviously crazy and unhinged and breaking things and wanting revenge on Olivia Hussey and all of these things, he can't be it. It has to be the nice <laughs> shop owner who would have gotten away with that without the meddling kids. It had to be Mr. Harrison, right? But even I was wrong. It, was, it, it does feel like a cheat, the fact that we do not know the killer even as credits roll. And it sort of throws back in my face. It's sort of the extreme of everything that I've always been saying about we want to identify with the victims. That may be true, but this movie brings home the point very clearly we also need to know our killer. Let me ask you a question, though. If this movie grabbed us more, would it have mattered? Because in my mind, sometimes a movie can be about, you know, this just the guy's a killer. It doesn't really matter. It's more about the people who are dying and things like that. It's more about the the story, the journey of these characters avoiding the killer or avoiding whatever they have to avoid. But these other characters didn't grab me as much. And so I was left scratching my head about this actual killer because he was, you know, arguably the most interesting character in the movie, yet we don't know anything about him. Well, Brock, you're kind of speaking for both Stuart and I by saying if we were more invested in this movie, you don't know where we stand on this movie. Uh, I can say that To me, no matter how invested I was or not, I feel like if you sell me a bill of goods, though, you put this up as a whodunit, which this movie does. It just sells Mm -hmm. itself as a whodunit. Mm -hmm. And you don't give me that answer that, yeah, I'm never going to walk out completely satisfied because you sold me a lemon. You got me on the hook for one thing and gave me something else. Now, if this was a character story about how people were reacting when their friends were being killed or something, that would be one thing. But that's Mm -hmm. that's not what this is. This is specifically a slasher film, perhaps one of the prototypes of slasher films. And yeah, Stuart nailed it without knowing who the killer is and without any kind of satisfying resolution, without an ending then no, it's it's not satisfying in that way. But as for how much I enjoyed the film up to there, you know, I, I don't think Stuart and I have shown our hands yet. I don't know how Stuart felt. Yeah, I was assuming, and you're right, we'll have the conversation now, that's what we're doing here. But, <laughs> but really, the movie starts with that POV shot, and then we get a whole lot of that 70s show. No, come on, it's the facts of life. Exactly <laughs> right, the facts right of life. Right exactly. down to Mrs. Garrett with a drinking problem. I mean, I thought the killer... <laughs> was going to be Blair's cerebral palsy-afflicted cousin Jerry. I was oh, like, man. oh, that would be awesome. The only reason I said that 70s show is because, my God, the fashion. I was like, is that Gabe Kaplan on the couch? Oh, it- yeah, that guy. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you know exactly who I'm yeah. talking about when I said Gabe Kaplan. I mean, it's it was an crazy. impressive fro, man. That was an impressive fro. And stash. Yeah, the stash that matches. Absolutely. I kind of dug the the girls in the 70s fashion. I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, I didn't really mind it as much as you did. I I thought it was kind of fun that almost felt like a period piece, but not really. 
I mean, well, it's not necessarily a period piece. It's just, it seems almost like when I see 70s fashion now, it's a parody. And then I see this, I'm like, no, it was really every bit as bad as the parodies make it seem. But we get the phone calls and everything. And I, I liked how the movie started off with this creepy atmosphere, but really so long passed with nothing happening. And they keep looking for the body and looking for the girl and the father comes. Well, we get the phone calls. The phone calls are pretty important here. And I guess what I wanted to know, and Brock, you've already kind of said, but Arnie, did you think that the caller and the killer were the same thing? Yes, yes, I did. I thought it from the very beginning, and until this very moment, I never questioned it. But now that you say it, I could see where the killer could be impersonating the caller's M.O., but I always just thought they were the same, yes. Well, no, I mean, the killer, the the caller could be a total red herring. In theory, it wouldn't have to be the killer at all. True. But the fact that the calls made those sounds where it sounded like multiple people and weird sexual or pain sounds it's it's like the old adam sandler are we having sex or am i killing the bitch but that kind of thing it's like i i feel like the film was telling us they're the same person so you then you you must have inferred that there was another line upstairs right away because that's supposed to be the big surprise that's the big twist is oh my god the calls are coming from upstairs get out of the house i mean so did you anticipate that Sadly, I never gave it a thought. I mean, that's at this point, such a cliche. Yeah. And I had first seen it in a film in the 70s called Are You in the House Alone? And I didn't realize that it all originated in Black Christmas until after I'd watched it and started doing research. Black Christmas was the first the killer is in the house or the calls are coming from in the house movie. Are you talking about when a stranger calls? No, there's one called Are You in the House Alone? (laughs) (laughs) No kidding. Really? Uh, really? Is it Canadian wow. or something? Like, is it like a ripoff movie or something? It has Bly Danner and Dennis Quaid. No kidding! Wow, from 1978. Well, Carol Kane was in uh, when 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 the stranger calls. Yeah, and that's yeah. the one that got remade. I think that one's the little more famous. And the one I was thinking about when the reveal finally comes, I'm like, huh, that movie was awful. And the only thing I ever gave it was the first 20 minutes were really cool because it had Carol Kane getting these phone calls and she was babysitting the kids. And they were saying, aren't you going to check the kids? And then you finally find out it, the call's coming from upstairs where the kids are sleeping and dun, 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 they're murdered. Then the rest of the movie's a total wash. It's a psycho like walking <laughs> around the streets for like hours at a time before finally tracking down Carol Kane years later, but th- it came from this movie. Yeah. I see. I was going to ask you if, if that was the case because I always know it from a stranger call. How interesting that this is another horror cliche that originated in this movie. Well, I wonder. It's are these origins? We don't, I think, exactly know, but. It's the first time that I can identify it. It's the first time it may have just been a ghost story, a campfire tale that people just told each other and they finally said, let's put it in a movie. But it's the first time I can think of a film movie use this device. And of course, it's carried with us all the way through Scream and this remake. I never really gave it a thought about the calls coming from inside the house because as much as this movie was released the year of my birth, I can't get myself out of the 21st century cell phone, multiple phone line mindset. And they never really explain how in 1974 technology he could make the calls from the house. They never say, did all the girls have their own lines or anything like that. So... But with the POV shot and the creepy calls, and I know what movie I'm seeing, <laughs> I, I just put it all as the same person. And I had two lines in my house growing up, so I never even give it a second thought. There's more than one line in the house. Mm-hmm. Ever. That must have been seen as such a luxury in 1974, but you're right. It isn't surprising now, and certainly in the age of cell phones, it's who even has a house line? One of the things I really do like about this movie is the spirit of it. And maybe it's just because... Like Bob Clark's other holiday movie, A Christmas Story, it really seems to hate the holiday. I mean, when we finally see the Phi Kappa Sigma pageant, like Marco Kidder is there with a little boy getting him drunk. And Phil's boyfriend is dressed as Santa going, ho, 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 fuck. I mean, <laughs> it's everything from his other movie except someone getting their eyes shut out. I mean, it's, it's kind of hilarious to me. I never really thought of A Christmas Story as anti-Christmas, but... Yeah, when you put two and two together... I never took Christmas Story to be anti-Christmas either. I thought it was was one of those... uh, This is what really Christmas is more like than all fun and 
perverse. Yeah, I mean, I think of I think of his take on it as being like a man fetishizing a leg lamp and a kid being kicked down a slide by Santa and shooting his eye out and tongues being stuck to poles. I don't think of that as being a happy holiday movie at all. <laughs> but it does end with a happy ending of the family together. Oh, well, that makes up for all of the abuse. In the prior 90 minutes. No, yeah, and, think- and a Chinese restaurant where all the people, all the good Christians have Christmas dinner. Mm. Well, he's also nowadays directing Baby Geniuses. No, he's dead. No, he's dead. He's dead? Oh, well, he did direct Baby Geniuses and its sequel. But also... Brightstone, guys. Golly Parton and Sliced Alone singing country songs. And Brock, we barely dodged his bullet as I wasn't sure if the Pat Morita starring Karate Dog was or wasn't <laughs> in the Karate Kid series. <laughs> but we're also missing a big one here in that, wasn't he the guy behind Porky's? Yes. He was. Are we doing a Bob Clark retrospective sometimes? <laughs> I don't think that's necessary, but yes. No, because we're going to dodge the Karate Dog again. <laughs> And forever. But I I see what you mean about the Christmas. I was actually surprised how little part Christmas really played in a movie entitled Black Christmas. Because other than the Christmas pageant, it it didn't seem very Christmassy. And I don't know about you guys, but when I went to college, we were gone for like a month around Christmas. Nobody was on campus anywhere near Christmas. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the thing that is a little hazy here is that I'm people are leaving for the holidays. It isn't Christmas yet. It's not Christmas Eve even. So it's what, like December 10th? <laughs> <laughs> It seems a little anticlimactic to not have the holiday be the the day of bloodletting. But I got to disagree with you, Arnie, strongly. The best, most perverse joke of all of this is that Christmas is what? The story about the most famous birth of all time? And what is the story built around? An abortion. That's not an accident. Bob Clark wrote an abortion story set at Christmas. That's wicked. And a guy sneaks into your house, and instead of leaving presents, he kills you. Yes, exactly. I mean, I I feel like this is a very much an anti-Christmas movie. It, you know, it couldn't be more alternative to the Bing Crosby White Christmas. Well, you say that it's a plot of abortion. It's definitely a subplot. It's a character. It's the story we spend the most time on. It's the story that all the action hinges on. I think we spend more time on the killer, on the, the guy in the attic and the whole thing. I, don't, I think it's abortions in this movie, Stuart. I'm not disagreeing with you about that at all, and I see where you're going with that. But to me, this movie is not about the abortion. It's definitely in the movie, but it's not a movie about abortion. Really, I, if, by that same token, this movie's about the search for Claire. I mean, they spend far more time talking about where's Claire and doing the hunt in the woods for Claire than they talk about the abortion or anything else. The hunt, hunt in the woods is for a, a little girl. Claire was in the attic. They're hunting for both because nobody knows Claire is in the attic, even at the end. True. But yes, yes, they're searching for both. They only find Janice. They obviously don't find Claire because she's... She's in the attic. She's in the attic. (laughs) With Agnes. (laughs) But come on. I mean, this is two years post Roe versus Wade, and this is a hot button issue. A young woman pregnant deciding she's not going to carry the baby and she's not going to listen to the man that impregnated her. That's hot stuff. I mean, that is very topical. And I don't I feel like the dialogue is written very much as a polemic. I mean, at one point he says, you haven't even asked me yet. Uh, You know, she's not going to give up her career. I mean, I definitely feel like it is the strongest storyline in the whole movie. Searching for Claire. We know how that's going to end. We saw her get killed in the beginning. This is the meat of the movie. And certainly as the phone calls come in and the voices start talking about where is the baby and there's a mother and son or some kind of back and forth between a male voice and a female voice and a child talking. Uh, Tell me you weren't thinking about how it might play out with Olivia Hussey being pregnant. I did think especially when they start talking about the baby although i gotta say did it either of you have trouble understanding what was being said on the phone sure i made out certain words and phrases but i almost subtitled it for those parts i understood the baby part when it was they made it crystal clear that he was talking about the baby on the phone after mm-hmm. they had the conversation stuff but i agree with you i had a lot of problems understanding the voice on the phone and the most famous line in the movie and we'll get to that later I didn't understand that at all. I had to rewind it three or four times to understand what he said. I didn't, what's, I didn't, the, what's the most famous line? The Agnes Billy 
thing. And, and like, I didn't understand who the hell, because I don't know the name Agnes. I'm like, what's going on here? So I had to rewind over and over again. And I just, I couldn't, I couldn't get that either. So when he's talking about the baby, yeah, it makes me think that it's the pianist. What's pianist's name? I, I really Peter, Peter Smiley. Peter. The most I, unsmiley smiley you'll ever know. It, <laughs> it makes me think it's Peter, but it just was that. It was the red herring. I never actually believed it was Peter because it was too obvious because they're talking about the baby and everything else. So, Oh, it's way too obvious. They overplay that so much. Like she's even home at one point and he comes down from upstairs. She's like, I didn't know you were here. What? He, he just wanders in. He has his own key. I mean, it was <laughs> way too obvious, which again is why my mind was wandering towards who else could it be? Mr. Harrison or the old boyfriend. Boy, you know, for all the cliches that they dole out, including a missing cat and the killer POV, why didn't they go for the obvious fingering of Claire's boyfriend as the number one suspect? That man walks free. The cops never arrest him. They never even think to question him. You do know that that was the ending the producers wanted, right? I have no idea what the producers wanted, no. According to Wikipedia, the producers tried to force Bob Clark to have an ending scene where Chris, the townie boyfriend of Claire, uh, is saying, don't tell him what we did, Agnes, as he kills Jess. So that was going to be the ending the producers wanted, but Bob Clark insisted on having the more ambiguous ending. Mm. So it, that's all Wikipedia says about it. So I don't know if it was always intended to be Chris and the producers are saying, well, let's show that it's Chris. And Bob Clark said, no, I'm just going to leave it ambiguous that it's Chris. Or if the producers just felt somebody had to be made the killer. So Chris was as good a suspect as any. And Bob Clark never intended the killer to be somebody who we knew or something. But that was a proposed alternate ending. No, it's interesting. It's kind of obvious. You know, I I feel like there was only two, three potential suspects. And when the answer is none of the above, that's a cheat in any murder mystery. Oh, it's something that you've never seen and never will know. And we don't even have an inkling about who Agnes and Billy might have been. And that is such a thing as I was really getting into don't tell them what we did, Agnes. And all of that, I'm like, who's Agnes? Who's <laughs> Billy? What is going on? And I'm thinking, is it like psycho? Is somebody regressing to their dead childhood twin? I mean, I, my mind's going all over the place, mainly because, yeah, as Brock had kind of alluded to, this movie didn't engage me because it took way too long to get started. It spent so long. Uh, there's just like, you know, we take notes for now playing when we watch the movies. All of us do, I think. And like 45 minutes passed and I looked and I hadn't written a damn thing on the page because – Really, it was just, let's search for Claire. We still can't find Claire. Let's go to the police and make fellatio jokes while looking for Claire. And I'm like, what happened to this being a slasher film? Well, it's not. And and I think that's key to point out. When I called it a linking between the Agatha Christie drawing room murder mystery plots and the slasher movies, I mean just that. It is neither one nor the other. A slasher movie would give you a whole lot more gore. There's only one gory death, and that's Margot Kidder's with the unicorn statue. That's the mm. only time you see blood, and then I think you see the cop with his throat slit, but you don't actually see the throat getting slit. There's no visual effects on this. There's no makeup prosthetic effects on this at all. It, it, it is not a slasher movie. A slasher movie to me says we're going to dramatize gratuitous gore and killing. And this movie doesn't do it. It is the murder mystery, much more than that. But it's a murder mystery with no answer. So it's not really a murder mystery either. So what is this? It's not a drama. (laughs) It's not a comedy. I think I just said that it is neither fish nor nor flesh. It is something in between. It It is the linking piece, the missing link between the slasher genre and the murder mystery. Look, the pace was too slow in the middle, and that's and that's all there is to it. I I got bored. I'm right there with Arnie. I got I was intrigued on in what was going on, but to get to a point where I'm like, get on with it. And I, I guess they had the whole piano recital thing in the middle to give us motivation for thinking it's that he's the killer and all that. And there was a weird shot of the judges then going underneath the piano up to him. The, and once we got to that part, I'm like, get on with this movie. Please. And no matter what, it, if it doesn't know what it is, Stuart, it doesn't know what it is, but that's not fair. <laughs> to me, the, the, the watcher, I, I did not, I was, 
I, I'm not saying I went in looking for a slasher movie, and I didn't go in looking for a murder mystery at all. But what I what I got was nothing, and so for me, it was disappointing, especially in the middle. I got better towards the end for me, but in that middle section was killing me. I'm gonna take Devil's Advocate a little bit because mm-hmm. I am a fan of movies that leave you on a creeped out vibe, and in the '70s when this type of movie was uncommon. And you see all this go on, and it's left with that – the last image is, you know, don't tell him what we did, Agnes, whispering and knowing he's in the house and all of that. That could make people go home and be afraid to turn the lights out in their house. And I like that. I like movies that do that. And by the same token, I understand it's the 70s, and we're not going to have this 90s Michael Bay-type pacing that I'm more used to now. And I'm okay with that. But yeah, it. I tried to be forgiving in every way I could when I was watching this, and I tried to tell myself, just relax, we're going to get to it, it's just a different time. But by the time they were starting the search through the woods, I was just shaking my head going, come on, just just move on. We And a, a part of it is I can't get past the fact that I know what's going on more than anyone making this movie does because I've seen it so many times in my life. But back then, it was probably new when everybody was still on the edge of their seat. For me, I'm like, when are we going to get onto it? When are we going to get more clues, more kills, more reveals? I hear what you're saying, guys. But I do think that you can enjoy this movie just for its dark spirit. Just for the fact that it dared to turn Christmas into a vile act. But it didn't do it in a way that was at all entertaining. I can <laughs> applaud it for trying. But A, I didn't get the aborted Jesus plot. B, I didn't get until you mentioned aborted Jesus that Santa was evil coming into the house to kill you. And C, even now that I get both of that and I go, oh, kudos for your clever twist of this festive holiday. Does it make me want to watch it again? <laughs> because I was still bored. Stuart, we talked about in our Texas Chainsaw Massacre retrospective that, and that came out the same year as this, that we had talk- conversations about pacing. And, and we talked, and Arnie, I'm glad to hear you say all this because we talked about this in Halloween. And we talked about this over all these retrospectives we've done about how you like things that are faster paced. And to hear you say this now, that's great. It seems like Stuart and I had a little bit of an effect on you at some point. <laughs> but there's a difference between having the slow build of Texas Chainsaw Massacre coming out the same very year that worked in that movie and here having this pace problem that didn't work for this movie. And I think in Texas Chainsaw, they were building and building and building and you felt that build and you felt that tension. We talked about all about that in that, in, that, in that retrospective. And so to have a different kind of pace is one thing, but this movie didn't have it go anywhere. And therefore, by a time that it could have started paying off and it started not paying off, that's when I started getting bored. You see, my concessions to the movie completely ran out because they weren't building towards anything and I realized it. And that's, what's, that's the difference between a slow build and a, a pacing problem. But you realize it after the fact. You didn't realize at the time they were never going to tell you who the killer was. No, I didn't know that part. But at the middle of the movie, I realized that this is not going anywhere. Because I knew in the middle of that What do you mean it's not going anywhere? It's building towards Olivia Hussey versus the killer. You know that much. No, I mean – But I realized in the middle of the movie that it was going very, very slowly and that – Yes, the phone calls were creepy. They 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 were. They were. Yes, absolutely. The voice that they used on the calls, very creepy – But too few and far between and too much time spent on too many other things like Margot Kidder getting the kid drunk and Margot Kidder making dirty fellatio jokes. It might have helped if I had found any of these girls at all relatable or likable and I didn't. And so I wasn't enjoying the time with them on screen when they weren't being impaled. See, I I guess that's exactly what I was going to get to. I kind of like these girls. I felt like they had genuine affection for each other. And that there was – it was just kind of fun to be in their house. I liked the house. I liked particularly Margot Kidder and how she was just kind of out of control and how – Am I the only one who expected Margot Kidder to pull out some teeth with some pliers? Oh, poor Margot <laughs> Kidder. It's I just mean, not – she was out of control like you said. <laughs> well, there is uh, an ugly foreshadowing to her own life in this character because she was a bit of a, a drinker and a drug addict if you read anything about her, her party ways in the 70s. And- And, of course, we now see if you attend Comic-Con, you can see her in uh, autograph jail desperately (laughs) desperately hoping someone will recognize her and want to pay $50 to get her to scrawl something on their Superman memorabilia. 
having seen her just a few months ago, it is very hard to recognize her. She's unrecognizable. It's shocking. I mean, it, it, it's true. It's, a, it's an unfortunate thing. But here in this movie, she looks lovely. And I don't yes. know. I, I, I didn't have a whole lot of expectations for this movie. I didn't know what it was going to be. And I knew a lot of it because it was proto typical slasher movie it was going to feel familiar the cat all you know all of these things but there were nice moments i jumped when the killer came out of the closet and and bagged claire over the head i thought that worked i thought the moment where the mom finds out her daughter is dead in the park and she starts to scream and rather than hear the sound of her scream we hear the phone ring i thought that was a nice bit that they've used again and again and again i remember them using that in the ring yeah, it's a cool thing. I, I feel like maybe kind of like in my review of uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, as a film historian, as an archivist, it's fun to go back and to see these things used in the first way. And I feel like the spirit is such in the movie that I was having a good time. Is it kind of boring? Well, if you want a horror movie, yeah. But if you want to just have an analytical thought about where your horror movie came from, I think it works. What you're saying, though, it, to me, sounds like homework. <laughs> you know, it's, you're saying, oh, it's all very interesting to see where it came from and look at the origins, but yet just because this created cliches doesn't make this in itself an enjoyable or entertaining experience to an audience of the 21st century back then again it may have been very new i can't review it as a person who had lived in 1974 and never seen a horror film but reviewing it as me i found the movie entertaining i think when you use the word entertaining you're talking about emotional engagement you're talking about being wrapped up in it and, and jumping and laughing and and being into the movie no i'm just talking about yes being into the movie and that I care about the characters, and I am actually not looking at my watch. I'm looking at the screen. This movie is better than Friday the 13th, which both of you recommended. Disagree. I completely disagree with you. This movie is not nearly as well-paced as Friday the 13th, which had kills spaced well throughout. And Ah, so it has to have good kills in order to keep you engaged. If it's a slasher film, yes. Okay, well, that's. I guess that is my point, is that that's why it's not a slasher film yet. It's murder mystery. Here's the thing is, when we were an hour into this movie, and we'd still, I think only Claire was dead, and they were still looking for Claire's body. I'm, I'm writing in my notes, why are they spending so much time searching for Claire when the audience knows what happened to Claire? And I thought that was a misstep. We saw what happened to Claire, so everybody looking for Claire is false to me it's like we know can we get to something we don't know because we know how all of this is going to turn out with claire actually i didn't i figured they'd eventually find claire's body they never did but yeah, yeah. the thing is it just didn't feel like they were going towards anything we didn't know by showing us claire in the beginning i still had hoped that the end of this movie would pull it out and as we've already talked about the way it cheats the audience it didn't it's not, you know, terrible, but at, at this point, again, I just, I didn't really connect to the girls. Margot Kidder on screen, I didn't find her raunchy or raw enough, I guess, you know? Come on, she's drunk talking about turtle sex. I thought, <laughs> she's looking at, she's looking at centerfolds of women. I thought she was a pretty interesting chick. I thought she was pretty cool, actually. She was the one I liked the most of all of the girls in the house. Yeah, in the definitely. House. And I also want to say before I go on to my next sentence is that I want to also point out the, the eyeball behind the door late in the movie, that was a great shot, and that was effective. As and was the eyeball in the shadow as the, he's killing Barb. I, I liked the eyeballs. Yeah, yeah, and that really worked. But frankly, I, I disagree with the Friday the 13th statement because I was engaged that entire time while we got a slasher movie with that murder mystery on top of it. Here, we got neither of them, and therefore, uh, and, and that was probably one of the reasons I could not get engaged in the movie. So when you say this movie's better than Friday the 13th and all that stuff about how it's the background and all that thing, from a historical perspective, I can understand that, and I'm totally agreeing with you, and I appreciate those kinds of things. But if you look at something like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and the banter between the two of them, and then you look at Lethal Weapon, you see the banter between the two of them, I still enjoy watching Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and see how many movies that has influenced since. But I also, at the same time, I can appreciate this movie, but at the same time, don't say, I don't have to automatically say it's a better movie because it, it, 
it was a precursor to something else. The movies that took things from this movie and went with it and made it better, they made better movies with their material. The Jazz Singer was the first film to use audio in that way. That doesn't make The Jazz Singer necessarily good in and of itself, just because other films eventually used sound. No, I agree. I I wouldn't give the movie a recommendation based on the fact that it did it first. I think many things have been taken and improved upon. I I think if you're going to have that attitude, you'd never watch a movie past 1932. You know, I I, I can recognize that this is the first. I'm not saying it's the best, but I I don't think it's a better movie than Halloween. I don't even think it's a better movie than Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but I do think it's a better movie than Friday the 13th, which had worse characters, worse acting. The only thing it had was gruesome deaths, and that's it. If this movie had the budget... They probably would have done it, but they didn't have the budget. I don't need Tom Savini giving me some fake blood to enjoy myself. I really don't. And I'm going to completely agree with you that the characters here felt more realistic and more fleshed out than they did in Friday the 13th. Because as we talk about Friday the 13th, and I think back to that group of camp counselors, yeah, (laughs) they're all pretty terrible. But the fact is that this movie went too far the other way, spent too much time with the characters and giving us the turtle sex and the abortion and all of this and way too much of Mrs. Mack, way too much of her entirely. Come on. I loved her song. What was that stuff about? Like alligators coming through my gate. Better move fast. She was in a different movie entirely. Her, her comedy stylings were a whole different movie entirely. It was, it was so weird. It was just way too much of that. If they had what Friday the 13th had over it, was again i think better pacing and constant reminders oh so disagree about the pacing that 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 first friday the 13th is dull and tom savini is the reason that movie is watchable you can't tell me that that was a great movie it was interesting as the inception of probably the most famous slasher icon but it is in and of itself not a great movie. hey the last half hour makes the movie but the first hour is far more engaging than the first hour of black christmas well, I'm I'm sorry you guys didn't enjoy the comedy as much as I did because I felt the spirit of this movie was the fun of it and and the, the wickedness of making Christmas and all the iconography of Christmas evil was fun. I liked it. So you're saying like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, this is a comedy? I I think it has comedic elements. Yes, uh, yeah, in, elements, in a similar sure. way. And it's, it has elements. I would, okay. If there were such a thing as a video store and I worked there, I wouldn't <laughs> put this DVD in the comedy section. I would not do that. But I do feel like a lot of really good horror movies know when to make us laugh. Laughter is really just another response to fear and the unknown. It's, it's not that dissimilar from, from crying and screaming. It's an emotional release. And mm-hmm. I think the movie does that better than it does the horror stuff, frankly. I never laughed. Not once. That the fellatio stuff with the cops laughing at the other guy. No, that, no, no, that no, that was no, no, no. That was a that was not great. But I, I, I enjoyed that. Oh well, okay. I enjoy fellatio as much as the next man. Yeah, but... I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying it all worked. I'm just saying. I guess what I'm saying is, even though I could recognize that this was a creaky old thing, there was something about the spirit of it that made me smile, and I stayed with it. I actually watched the movie twice. Great. As far as your disgruntlement about the ending, I racked my brain to see if I could think of another movie that did what this movie did. Totally leave the audience in a lurch and never tell you who was predicating on these women. And the only one that I could think of that I liked was a movie that came out about three or four years ago called The Strangers. Did you guys see it? I did. I actually really liked that movie. Yeah, I did too. It was Scott Speedman and Liv Tyler are these couple out in the middle of nowhere. And for reasons unknown that are never explained, a bunch of traveling psycho killers in masks are knocking at their door and really making their night very, very bad. It had a great eerie vibe. I, I Actually, yeah, I enjoyed that movie far more than I thought I would. But again, the reason it didn't feel like such a cheat is this is all torture being done to them by the others, the masked others. It was never a, do you think it's their buddy? And and what I would say is the reason why that movie is way more successful than this movie is that it comes to a conclusion about the personal story. I think I would be more happy with this movie, not if they had told me who the killer was, but if there had been something about Jess 
and Peter that transpired about the baby and what was going to happen about the baby. I think that they, if they had actually written that into their ending climactic confrontation in the basement, I could be satisfied with not knowing about who's in the attic. But the fact of the matter is they didn't just drop the killer ball. They dropped all balls. We have no resolution on any storyline that they presented. And that is the cheat. That is very true. And you, you saw the abortion as a much bigger part of this movie than I did. But yeah, if that had played into the ending, perhaps it would have made a bigger impact on me as it as a part of the movie. The fact that it ends with him dead in her arms and she's still pregnant with the baby and you you don't know how it's going to end. It just kind of stops. I was pissed when the credits started. I'm like, really? You're, that's how it's fucking ending? I thought, you know, horror movies these days, you always have the last scare. I thought the cops were driving away and they thought they had the killer. And now, haha, I'm the real killer. And then another confrontation but no no the lights came up and it was time to go home yeah it's angry actually i was more confused i thought for sure i must have missed something Me too. And, I, and, and that was partly why i watched the movie again but no we didn't it, they just didn't tell us and it's odd to me also no sequel well this, that's the perfect time to fill in who billy is and everything else right got to be a sequel and with the horror genre exploding in the next couple of years why did bob clark never think to go back to black christmas it would have been perfect. And it's not like he's above it. He made a sequel to Christmas Story 10 years later that nobody saw he called did? It Runs in the Family. It called It's Run is in the Family. He sure did. Oh, God, I remember that. I do. Yeah. Culkin's in that, right? Kiernan Culkin or... Uh, you got it. Yep. Yeah, something like that. And he made a sequel to Baby Geniuses. So the man does sequels <laughs> and to his properties. And Porky's. I mean, he's not above it. So I, I always... I think it's funny that with this much unresolved, he never thought to do a sequel. Would you guys be up for watching a sequel if there had been? The only reason I could see why it might not have is, according to what I read, this movie really started gaining its cult following in mass only in 2004 when it was featured in AFI's 100 Scariest Movie Moments. Before that, it was really underground. So, Well, in, in case in point, a horror aficionado like me and you, Arnie, and we missed it in all of the 80s and all of the backcombing and every horror movie I tried to get in there, I never even thought about this. And movie. I'd never heard of it. Yeah, I, I think I probably heard the title, but I think I kept confusing it with Silent Night, Deadly Night. Right, exactly. Right. As for would I be up for a sequel, they'd, ha they'd have had my... What was it back then? Uh, a quarter and a nickel, you know, 30 cents for a matinee. They'd have had my nickel at the Nickelodeon because I just want to fucking know who did it. And I want to know who Agnes is and Billy. So, yeah, they would have had me back for a sequel. And sure. I, and you know what? I didn't hate this movie. I, I just really it was wavering. And then at the end, I felt so ripped off that it clearly went to where everybody can guess I'm going to go when we get to our recommend not recommends. But yeah. yeah, I would have been up for a sequel, sure, with or without Bob Clark. I, I probably wouldn't have gone to the movie to see a sequel after seeing this. I would have, you know, and then in, the, in the future when this thing called Cable came out, if it was on, I would have watched it. I, I tend to watch sequels on video or on cable for years after I, I saw the first one, if I didn't like the first one too much, because I'm always curious. I've watched too many Police Academy sequels. So I, I'm, a, I'm a, that kind of sequel watcher. But um, unless I like the first one a lot, I don't go back for the sequel. Well, I guess what I'm saying is, do you think your opinion of this movie might have been enhanced if more story was told in another movie? No. No, I would have judged the movie on its own and not the sequel. Yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. same I did thing. Friday the, Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, yeah so. I mean, Friday the 13th, we, uh, Jason's only in it in the last couple seconds. You have to go right. to the sequels to see him kill anybody. It could have been a similar thing. It could have, but no, I, I mean, as it stands, this movie itself would be unfulfilling. And I'd, if it had become a huge thing where Billy the Killer was up there with Jason and Freddy, then I think I would probably say what you have said, Stuart, which is, this is interesting only insofar as it's the genesis of this mass culture icon. But sure. it's not, so it doesn't even have that. So as a segue then to Stuart Arnie, do you recommend Black Christmas? Stuart. You know, I'm not a big Christmas guy. I've never really liked the holiday. Our family, we did go to Chinese restaurants. We, you know, I wanted to avoid my family. I, I can go with a movie whose vibe and intent is to sort of satirize and, and shit upon this holiday. I think it's fun. And I think this movie does it. Is it a great movie? 
No. And yes, a lot of what's good about it has been done better later down the road. But I'll tell you what, people watch It's a Wonderful Life every year. People watch Rudolph the Red-Nosed the Reindeer every year. I could see myself watching this again on another Christmas when I reminded myself how much I don't like the holiday. So in that respect, yeah, it could be a perennial. I could enjoy watching this movie again, and I think you should at least take a look at it once and see if it's your thing. So that's a recommend? That's a recommend. And I want to point out that we didn't mention it. This town is Bedford, you said? Yes. And Bedford Falls, of course. It's a wonderful life. Ah. Arnie. It's ironic because, Stuart, you and I used to go to Chinese restaurants together on Christmas to avoid our mutual families. And then we'd go (laughs) see a movie. So, And here we are now playing. But no, I don't recommend Black Christmas. It's not a horrible film. It's really not. I just didn't find it very engaging. I didn't find the characters incredibly likable. It's got some real good things going for it. As I said, the calls were very eerie. And really, I, it's probably worth a watch just so you can get the whole, what we do, Agnes? It's me, Billy. You know, the voice and the whole thing. It's really creepy. It, it's got some nice things. But can I recommend this movie? No. Would I watch this movie again? No. So, no, I I don't recommend it, but it's a weak not recommend. It's got some things going for it in an enjoyment experience. And as we've talked about this whole time, it really did start a lot of things that we never even knew it started until we watched it. But, nah, I I don't really recommend it unless you feel like doing some horror homework. And with homework comes a little bit of agony and heavy lifting. (laughs) And I, too, don't recommend it, and I'm right there with both of you. I I completely acknowledge what this movie brings, uh, and I did like some parts of it. But at the end of the day, I was unsatisfied with this movie, and I was bored in the middle of it, as I mentioned earlier. I I thought the pacing was way off. We watched the police tap and then follow the tap of a phone in the middle of the movie, and not just once. They did it twice. And do they really – is that how they tap a line is by looking at wires in the ceiling and running through a phone grid? I have no idea. Is, is there like a pulsing light on the tracer line? I was wondering. I, I mean, it, I have no idea. But all I know is I don't need to see it two or three times. I don't <laughs> in a movie. If that's how it works, can't you just cut to the chase and you get to the, you know, he's running up to that point where he sees it. You know, it's it's called editing, folks. And if it's in the same house, did he really have to go far? Well, maybe he was faked out because it was in the same house. I don't know. But I, I do know that while I completely acknowledge what the movie is, and I agree that if you are going in the annals of horror slasher movie history. You probably will come around to seeing this, but I will not recommend you do so. I I took a terror and horror literature class in college, and we read a lot of, like, gothic stuff that wasn't really necessarily horror. We read all the way through Robert Louis Stevenson, all the way to Stephen King, and it was really kind of interesting how you see the genre progress. If you're doing that sort of thing with horror movies, and you're going all the way back to Universal Monsters and all that kind of stuff, you should hit on Black Christmas. And that's the only kind of recommend I could possibly give you. But I am not going to recommend you see Black Christmas. So, again, we want to thank you for voting for us in the podcast award nomination process. Notice he said voting both past tense and current tense in that we assume that while you listened, you went and voted. And then we assume that tomorrow you're going to wake up and be wondering when the podcast about the Black Christmas remake will come out. And while you're thinking about it, you'll go vote again. Exactly. So thank you again. And please vote for us to actually win the award. And if you enjoyed this podcast, of course, if you haven't heard our Texas Chainsaw Massacre Friday the 13th or Halloween or any of our other podcasts, you can find all of those in the Now Playing Archive section at nowplayingpodcast.com. So, Stuart, Arnie, are we going to review the remake of Black Christmas? Is that what I'm hearing? Oh, yes. We've paused our game of Tron and are going (laughs) straight to find out who Billy and Agnes are, hopefully, in the remake of Black Christmas. And we'll have that conversation next time on Now Playing. Now go vote. (laughs) Vote early, vote often. Thank you for listening to this Now Playing Podcast movie review. Put the Christmas music back on. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You just want to feel at home, especially on Christmas. If you enjoyed this show, please tell others. You can help us out by leaving us a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your other podcast store of choice. Peter, you're not going to tell me what I can and cannot do. 
Want to hear more reviews like this one? You can find hundreds of other movie reviews at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Listen, you pervert, why don't you go over to Lamb of Kai? They could use a little of this. In our archives, listen to our hosts discuss horror, sci-fi, action, and more. He's probably listening to us right now. Come back each week for another new show. Could you give me the number? Yeah, sure. It's, uh, Fellatio 20880. Now Playing relies on listener support to keep operating. For all, like, my family now. Details can be found by clicking the banner at the top of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Could you just give it to me one time? You can also follow Now Playing on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. There, the hosts post new episode announcements, movie reviews, and contests, where you can win movies and soundtracks. Also, subscribe to us on YouTube for original video content. Just spread out and follow them. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. That sucks. Everyone should be home for Christmas. Now Playing credits read by Brock. That, that fucking voice, that was the fucking devil, okay? The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. I really don't think you should provoke somebody like that, Barb. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. X, don't you tell what we did, X? All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. So he went down to the police station with Phil and Bob. What happened? They didn't take it seriously. Why? I don't know. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of, and may not be used without the expressed written permission of, Venganza Media Incorporated. I will bring you to your knees. You beg for mercy? Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2010, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Fuck Christmas. Fuck it. Hello. 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 Wait a minute. Is this like from the movie when you're like doing a bad voice over the phone? Is a prank phone call? <laughs> Don't tell them what we did, Agnes. <laughs> <laughs> so today we have uh, <laughs> Harvey Firestein on the call. That's great. Always a pleasure to have you, Harvey. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell him what we did, Agnes. Don't tell him what I'm eating, Agnes. Mm. You're a pretty pink cunt. (laughs) (laughs) The way you said that was like really funny. It was like (laughs) you are a. It's like the guy from Thirty Rock, that happy-go-lucky kid from Thirty Rock, saying, "You're a pretty pink cunt." (laughs) We're bringing you Black Friday, Black Friday, (laughs) (laughs) and Cyber Monday, the sequel. Because we're blinging, blinging. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I want for Christmas, some bling. Oh my I get it back at the Richard Roundtree Black Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Pam Greer is going to put a foot in your ass if you don't get this right. <laughs> well, it's the night before the Phi Kappa Sigma Christmas pageant. Oh, man, you totally <laughs> played around with me. I thought you were the yeah, night before Christmas. I, I, I was really like, holy shit, I, that was awesome. I would have so rocked if it was like the night before Christmas in Kappa Sigma. <laughs> yeah, you wanted me happened. to write couplets? You want me to write couplets for this? No, not going to happen. <laughs> Man, you totally played me. Well, all right. I'm sorry. This is going to be a much more, uh, uh, less prosaic version of that. <laughs> it's I the night before. I would have set you the glass unicorn right now if you'd done that. <laughs> Damn it! Man, I wish I had spent the time. I mean, maybe I could maybe I could do this and all through the house that a bitch was stirring. No, I can't do I can't do it. Except for Agnes. <laughs> there we go. That's the plot summary. <laughs> it's the night before the Phi Kappa Sigma Christmas pageant. And in the snow ugh, fuck.
<laughs> it's the night before the Phi Kappa Sigma. Ugh. <laughs> and this is a long one, guys, so I got to get this right. All right. We don't even know that this is the killer. We know that this is. No, no, you, no, I'm sorry. Scrap that. We do know it's the killer. Okay, good. We don't. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was going to wait till you finish sentence, then I'll say, I yeah. disagree. <laughs> yeah, we were both waiting to pounce. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, no. I got confused. I got confused. Um, what was I saying? Um, well, thank you, Terrence Trent Darby, because I think the phrase is actually neither fish nor fowl. <laughs> neither fish nor flesh was the name of a Terrence Trent Darby album. <laughs> and I had that album, too. And you gave it Clearly. to me. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Peter, did you guys notice who that actor is? No. Yeah, he was from the Monkees, right? No. Permatermits. No, come on. Think Kubrick. He's Kubert? The video game character? <laughs> yes. Isn't that amazing? He, Ten years he looks, he looks better than he did in Kubert. Man, he let himself go for Kubert, I'll tell you. He had a yeah. nose job. All right. I, I've got to admit, no. I, I've never seen 2001. 2001. He's Dave. Hal and Dave. He's the one that shuts down Dave the computer. You mean he, you've never? You mean you mean Hal the computer? Oh, oh yes, I'm sorry. He's the one that shoots that. Oh, fuck. He's the one that shuts down Hal the computer in 2001: A Space Odyssey. Arnie, you've never seen it. Dave, I, I don't need to see it. I've seen it referenced enough. I know about the monkey and the bone and Hal. You got to. Oh see well. It. All right. Okay. Maybe we'll do a 2010 retrospective someday. We're a little late or a Kubrick series or a Kubrick series. I'm fighting for it. You can vote for that uh, if you vote for us. All right. <laughs>